Welcome to Granite State Golfers with Micah. I'm an avid amateur golfer in New Hampshire. This podcast dives into the stories of the top amateur golfers in my home state. We are about to tee off. Please join me. This episode features Matt Schmidt, who is the executive director of the New Hampshire Golf Association. We talk about Matt's journey into golf administration, the role of the NHGA in the state, all the prep work that goes into organizing the large tournaments like the men's and women's stadiums. We also discuss the explosive growth golf has seen over the past few years and what initiatives the NHGA is working on for the coming years. I hope you enjoy the show. Matt, welcome to Granite State Golfers, and thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah, appreciate you having me. Let's just talk about where you grew up and what. when did you first get involved with golf? Uh, who got you into golf and where were you playing? Yeah, so I guess I sort of have a non-traditional route to, to golf administration, having a career in golf administration. I actually grew up outside D.C., um, Northern Virginia, played golf growing up. My dad and my grandfather both played so I sort of inherited it from them. Um, I did play three years of high school golf, was not very good, was not very competitive, had no chance of playing um, at any sort of collegiate level. Um, I went to school out in the Midwest. I'm a, I'm a proud Notre Dame graduate and studied um, American studies out there, had some delusions about potentially going to law school for a while. Eventually, after graduation, moved back home to D.C. and started working for a government contracting company, which is what, you know, 95 percent of the population of northern Virginia and suburban Maryland are doing in that area. And I did that for about a year and a half. And, and I just I hated it. Um, you know, Waking up every morning, sitting in traffic, going to work, wondering what I'm doing with my life. And at that point, wondering, am I going to wake up and be 35 and, and be miserable? Um and I stumbled at one point over the, the USGA's Boatwright Internship Program. And this is a program where the, the USGA provides grants to state golf associations to hire typically summer administrative help to run events. As anybody who knows anything about the NHGA understands, we've got a very busy season during the summer. And with a small staff, we, we rely on the help of those interns to help us get through the season. So I stumbled on uh, a number of internships that were open. This was this must have been um, sometime in the in 2005 when I found the boat right positions that were open, and found a, a longer term nine month internship that was open with the Indiana Golf Association, and and um, interviewed for that job. And I actually remember the the tournament director out there at the time told me after my first interview, he called me back and said you're way overqualified for this. I'm not really sure why you want to do this, but I'm going to offer you the job anyway. And I said, I'll take it. And I loaded up uh, a U-Haul and I had my Jeep Cherokee and drove from Northern Virginia out to Franklin, Indiana in January of 2006 to start my internship, really thinking I knew a lot about golf and and not realizing that I didn't really know anything about golf administration. Uh, my internship out there was a lot of behind the scenes work, working with the tournament director on the, the back end stuff that needs to go on for, uh, for tournaments, handling entries, doing pairings. Heck, back in those days, we were still physically mailing pairings out to everybody. Um, so it was a lot of learning about how these tournaments are run, what needs to be done behind the scenes to get these things off the ground. 
I did attend a few events, um, particularly towards the end of my internship. But as it was kind of wrapping up in the fall of 2006, I really didn't know what my what my plan was going to be. There were not jobs open in Indiana. I'd applied for a couple of other jobs at golf associations, some of which really had nothing to do with tournament administration at all. They were more back-end support staff stuff with some other golf associations and PGA sections. And then I was really fortunate in the fall of 2006 that a position opened up in Indiana and I was able to hop in there and, and take it as an assistant tournament director and a director of PGA membership. Indiana is actually a joint association where the amateur IGA and the PGA section are together under one roof and administered by one staff. So I was really fortunate that the job opened up, started, I guess, formally, probably late September, early October of 2006 is when I started full time. So I did that for about a year and a half, and it was, I guess, in early June of, um, I guess, 2007 or um, I guess 2008, actually. I was, I was out marking a golf course with the tournament director out there in Indiana, and he said, you know, I, I need to tell you something so you're not caught off guard, but I, I'm taking another job. I'm leaving. So then the tournament director job opened up and I sort of served it as the de facto tournament director for the busiest part of the season out there. And then was fortunate enough to be promoted to tournament director. Um, and it's a heavy lift out there in Indiana with the joint association. You're running in the neighborhood of 75, 80, 85 events out there over the course of a season, which is really similar to what we have here in New Hampshire. It probably starts a little earlier on the front end, but you're typically going to the same time in the fall. Um, and we were doing things like running a Monday qualifier for the corn Ferry tour. We were running at the time, the big 10 men's and women's championship. Um, so it was, it was a lot. And, and I was tournament director for about five years. And then the job here in New Hampshire opened up in the spring of 2013, came out here in May of 2013, the interview for that position was offered the executive director job in June of 2013 and started right around Labor Day of 2013. So it'll actually be nine years here in another, what, four weeks or so that I've wow. been with the NHGA. So, you know, it's been a journey. I, I would say, um, certainly when I was tournament director out there and after doing it for five years, I really started to have my eye on becoming an executive director and running um, my own golf association. Um, so I was, I was fortunate. There are not a lot of these jobs that exist out there right now. And it is a very... Um, sort of nuanced and specific skill set in terms of running an association. Now, that being said, a lot of what I do on the back end of things is no different than anybody who runs a small business um, or runs a nonprofit. We are a 501c3. So there are a lot of those things that go into it. But um, but yeah, I've been lucky. I, I've really loved my time here in New Hampshire. Um, we don't have family up here. We don't really have a tie to this region or the state at all. But my family has loved it. I've got a wife and, and two, I shouldn't say small kids. They were small nine years ago. They're not now. They're 11 and 14 now. But we feel like this is our adopted adoptive home. Um, we, we love the state. We love how much there is to do here. Um, we love, I love the golf. We have so much, so many good golf courses, so many good golfers, so many good golf stories to tell for a tiny state. Um, and the association has been through a lot in the last nine years. Um, and And I'm really proud of where we were when I got here to where we are right now. Yeah. Well, that's a great story. Um, let's talk a little bit. I'm sure most listeners are going to be familiar with the NHGA, but at a high level, what's the overall mission and role of the NHGA in golf for the state of New Hampshire? 
Sure. So we've got 20,000, about 20,000 individual members. There are uh, about 96 member clubs um, that are members of the association. And our job, what we do, I, I, the, the best way I can describe it is we're kind of the clearinghouse for amateur golf in the state. We are a recognized allied golf association with the USGA. And, and part of our responsibility there is to be delivering the core services that the USGA expects us to deliver for amateur golfers. And that is providing playing opportunities through our tournaments, not only to, um, to men, but to women and to, to juniors as well, to provide course rating um, services to our clubs. Uh, it, that is a uh, core tenant of the USGA handicap system is to have golf courses rated every 10 years or as needed. So we provide that service to our clubs. We provide handicap administration and oversight. Obviously, everybody who has a handicap in the state knows that we're on the gin system and we provide handicap or administration and support for the gin system to our clubs and to our individual members as well when they have questions about, you know, why is my handicap doing this or how do I get set up with a handicap? Um, that's our job as well. Rules of golf education, I think. That's something that, that we sort of do that's public facing that folks will see that we do uh, rule seminars every every year, usually during the spring. Our staff attends rules of golf training. We field questions from clubs and from indi individual players about questions they have on the rules of golf. Um, and then I think just working with our allied associations in the state, promoting the game, trying to continue to grow the game, um, whatever we can do. Golf is obviously in a great great place right now post COVID, which I don't think a lot of us saw. Um, but a lot of that conversation has turned into how do we keep the momentum going? How do we keep people engaged? How do we make sure that at worst participation plateaus off rather than significantly declining? So that's sort of who we are and what we do. I won't say that we're a mini USGA within the state of New Hampshire, but again, that relationship we have with them as an allied golf association, they have some expectations for the services that we're providing for the individual members. Um, and I would say the individual golfer as well, even folks that aren't members of the association can reach out if they have questions about why should I get a handicap? What's what's, what are the benefits of becoming a member of the asso association? Um, you know, I'm not a member and, and we have clubs in the state. We have golf courses that aren't members of the association and it's still our job to go out and rate those golf courses and provide that service to them. So it's sort of a, a catch-all for uh, for every golfer in the state, really. Yeah, well, thank you for that. And that's a, a good segue for the next question about the COVID and what, what the golf industry has seen through COVID, which is a tremendous surge in demand for tee times, uh, explosive growth for, you know, according to golf equipment sales. Um, I know, you know, where I play at the Oaks and talking to a lot of friends at other Seacoast uh, golf courses, uh, particularly the, the surge on, tea times over the last couple of years has been quite something. I'm wondering if you could speak to the growth in popularity of golf over the last couple of years. I know that's happened nationwide. Do you have a sense in New Hampshire where that growth is coming from? Is it a mix of all demographics? Is it more juniors? Is it people in their twenties? Is it seniors? Where, where's the growth coming from? You think? I, I think it's a lot of millennials. It's a lot of younger people that maybe were exposed to the game at a younger age. And then you really do historically, you see that drop off in the 
you know, the college years in your early twenties, mid twenties, late twenties, those are the big life-changing years. People are graduating from college and getting jobs and getting married and then starting families. And you start to see, historically, you've started to see those people come back as they get maybe into their mid to later thirties. They're a little more established. Maybe they have a little more disposable income that's going to allow them to play the game. They want to get their kids involved. So once once the kids, you know, are interested in it, then then the, the parents start to get interested again as well. I, I think that's where we've seen the growth. You talk to golf course owners and operators. I think they are surprised with how many millennials are coming in and the way that they digest the game, how different it is from the older demographic that is very traditional you know, four 65 year old players are probably still going to walk into a golf shop and they're all going to pay individually for their, for their rounds. Whereas talking to some owners and operators, they'll have a tea time book for, you know, 20 somethings. And one, one person comes in and pays for the whole group and says, you know what, the other, the other guys are going to Venmo me the money. Um, and it's a, it's a more social experience. It, it is. Um, and I think to, to speak to COVID, what people view it as is something to do that's healthy outdoors and, and relatively safe. And obviously everyone's opinions and thoughts about COVID have evolved over the last two plus years. But I think, I I do think that people still view that as something that they can do that is extremely low risk to do, particularly during the summer, it's outside, you're in the sunlight, you're getting exercise. You're not exposed to other people necessarily one on top of each other for any significant amount of time. So I think that millennial group is where a lot of the growth growth has come from. Look, New Hampshire is is fighting demographics in a lot of different regards. It is an old state that continues to get older, um, and, and the demographics of golf golfers have always trended um, towards the older side of things. Retirees, folks that have more disposable income and time to play the game. But it's nice to see us filling in those gaps of those younger folks that are getting involved with it, that the kids are getting involved. I mean, junior, we've seen participation numbers in our junior events that we've never seen before. And in a lot of cases, I would say we feel like it's becoming an activity where other sports, soccer, lacrosse, baseball, you name it, that was something to put kids in because, you know, at the end of the day, it was something for them to do as a way for them to stay active and engaged and athletic. And, I think golf is starting to fill that role a little bit too. We we hear that from folks that have called into the office and said, you know, my kids got an interest in golf. What's the next step? How do I get them playing more? What can I get get them doing that is going to get them to to play a little bit more competitively? And we didn't feel those those kind of phone calls five or six years ago. We had a core group of juniors, um, but it was a challenge to get newer kids involved. And every year it seems for the last two plus years, we're seeing names of kids that we've never seen before that want to participate. That's great. So, um, you know, you start to see it with the, the, the parents again, playing and that trickles down to the kids. So that that's something that's positive. I think when you look at the trend for the game and I, you know, I mentioned that nobody wants to see this thing go off a cliff like it did back when we had the recession in 2008 and people really stopped playing golf at worst, we want to see this thing plateau off. Um, and it sure seems like that the momentum is still there. It, golf seems like it's as popular as it's ever been. Yeah. Anecdotally, on your point about the millennials, anecdotally from the last couple of years, from courses I've played in the state, I, I think that's spot on. And in, in an interesting piece of the millennial, uh, millennials playing that I know is an active topic of conversation in some circles of golf, certainly 
with my close friends of golf, which is the music on the golf course. Um, and I think the, that's, that's, I think it's something that's changed in the millennials have brought that. And I think not just them, but you, there's just a lot more music that you're hearing in groups. It may be in your own group or on an adjacent hole. Um, and well, that, that, that's probably a whole other conversation about what people's thoughts are about music on the golf course. Um, well, look, it's, I mean, it's, it speaks to the way that younger people consume everything that yep. they do and, and the social aspect of it. And I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, the game is still viewed as, um, old and white and elitist. And those are still things that we fight every day and yep. trying to bring new people to the game and expensive. Um, but I think that, the, the governing bodies in particular and the powers that be have started to embrace things like technology and understanding that, you know, it's important for, to recognize that the younger generations, they interact with each other in completely different ways than, than we used to. They interact with each other over social media. They want access to their phone during the course of a round, whether it's to play music, whether it's to post their score, whether it's to keep track of stats, whether it's to, engage on social media as an influencer to say, I'm out here playing golf and to get people engaged that way. Those things are vitally important. Um, whether people want to believe it or not, they are vitally important to the future of the game. And, yep. you know, there's going to be an announcement here. I think it just came out about a half an hour ago from the USGA that they're integrating their, their gin app is now going to be able, folks are going to be able to use that on their smart watches. You know, just another, I know that's a small thing and there are plenty of apps out there that you can already do that. But I think it, again, it's just a way of recognizing these, we can't be stuck in our ways here. I mean, look at, look at the masters, you know, that is, that used to be the elitist of the elite. We only got to see as spectators, the back nine on the weekend. That's all we ever got. And now we can literally see every shot of any player we want to in every round of that tournament. And even Augusta has realized this is how younger people want to consume content. They want to do it on their computers or on their mobile devices, and they want it when it's best available to them, not when it just happens to be on broadcast TV. And I, and I think most golf fans wish that the Masters in IBM, which I think powers their website and their social if they could license it all out to the PGA tour. So it's we could, right. I mean, it's the best, it's the best fan experience in terms of being able to watch what you want, when you want every shot. And boy, if we could, I mean, it's evolving good, but the masters is definitely, as you noted, it's the gold standard for that. For sure. And it's yes. funny to me thinking about the, uh, you know, the dichotomy of Fred Ridley and, and all the Augusta <laughs> members uh, on the one hand, and there's a room of, 20 something brilliant IT kids who are producing all this great social media yep. content and making sure you've got shot trackers and live shots of all these players. But again, that's how you stay relevant. That's how you stay engaged with a younger generation who obviously is, you know, could, could push that away is that's old and elitist and inaccessible to me as somebody that's young. And they, they don't do that. They've embraced that for sure. Yeah. Uh, let's go back to course rating. Um, you talked a little bit about the role the NHGA plays in that with New Hampshire golf courses. It, you said it it happens on an interval roughly around 10 years. Just walk me through um, how it actually happens. Who Who's involved from the NHGA and what goes into re, re-looking at or refreshing a course's rating? 
So Kate Billings is our, she's our director of handicapping. So she handles all of our course ratings and she's the one from our staff that, that has attended the, the USGA calibration seminars, which, which they call them. So they, they go down there and they get a real crash course on the course rating manual. Honestly, if you, if you ask me a question about, you know, how you rate certain penalty areas or challenges of playing a whole, I don't really get it. That's, that's her bailiwick, but but we also have a volunteer uh, group of people that go out and actually rate the golf courses. So that's where for us, particularly as a smaller organization, you, you may look at a bigger state golf association like Mass Golf or Southern California or Texas, where they have obviously infinitely more golf courses, but they have an entire course rating department. We've got one staff person who's our subject matter expert, and she relies on some really strong volunteers that are our team leaders who go out there and handle the ratings and then volunteers who go out and they learn the process and they have a book that they work from and they have a worksheet um, where they rate different things like the, the, the relative difficulty of playing a hole, looking at the penalty areas that are out there, looking at things like trees and elevation changes and yardage. Um, and then using the book as a guide to, to write down individual numbers for how difficult a hole might be. And then they get to the end and they go through the teams go through hole by hole and they may alternate one split up into teams and one side, one group takes the front nine, one group takes the back nine. And then they come together at the end, compare their numbers. Kate takes all the information, plugs it into the course rating database. And then that database is going to spit out a new rating for, for that golf course from, from each set of tees. Um, so it is every 10 years that golf courses have to be re-rated. So it's on a 10 year cycle. Uh, a challenge for us recently has been since we've merged with the women's association, the golf courses, um, were rated on a different timeline by the NHWJ than they were for us. And the NHWJ was typically only rating tees that, that the ladies were playing and we were only rating tees that the men were playing. So we've had to, in order to try to get every, all the courses back on a 10 year schedule, you know, had some wiggle room here or there. Maybe it's only eight years for this course. Maybe we're pushing another course to 11 or 12 years just so we can do all the sets of tees at the same time. And then the other, the other part of it is golf courses are obviously a lot of them, um, particularly now with the amount of revenue golf courses have, and then they're looking at how to spend that and spending it on the golf course. And does that mean we want to take trees out, which is a big trend right now for a lot of golf courses or, you know, we found some old historical plans of the golf course and, you know, on this hole, there used to be six more bunkers and we want to go in and restore those bunkers. So the hole looks like what it looked like in 1930. Um, and do we need a re-rating for that? And typically if you've changed one hole, what we can do is it's called a book rating where we can just look at what those new obstacles that are put in are. And Kate can, can look in the book and, and do a simple re-rating of that hole and plug the numbers in again to see how it affects it. Um, but if there are significant changes to a golf course, you know, new tee boxes, we, we're always talking about yardage, something that the USGA is going through right now with their distance insight project. Um, when new tee boxes are put in, how is that going to affect the rating of golf courses? And do we need to send somebody out to, to re-rate from a, a particular set of tees? Or perhaps there's a brand new set of tee boxes everywhere on all 18 holes that might require a rating and a slope from, from those tee boxes. So it's, it's really an ongoing process, um, that evolves with how golf courses change and what they're adding or taking away, uh, in addition to, to being on sort of that regular 10 year cycle. Got it. Let's talk about some of the tournaments. You guys host a lot of tournaments. Let's talk about what goes into hosting some of those tournaments. So the men's state am 
wrapped up recently at Abenaki. The women's stadium gets underway next week at Concord. What goes into these from how far in advance are courses selected? Who's involved in selecting the courses that are going to host some of these big championships? And then as you get closer to uh, you know, your weeks or I don't know how far it, it takes place month away in terms of the actual course setup, that's going to take place pins, lo- pin location, what tees walk me through how the NHGA works on some of those championships. So for our major championships, um, I think the M is scheduled out until 2028 or 2029 at this point, I think it might be 2028 is going to be down at Brentwood. That's the men's amateur. Uh, the ladies am is scheduled out for another two years after this year at Concord, um, the open, the state open, we only have scheduled out uh, one year in advance. Now it's going to be down at Brentwood next year, but we do like to have the majors scheduled out as far in advance as we can. Um, particularly, I'd say this, the two state amateurs and the state open more so than anything else. Um, you know, you, you're, you, I would say it would be fair to say that there's a pretty standard rotation of golf courses that, that hosts the state am. I think there are plenty of golf courses in the state that, we view as being championship worthy, but I I think much in the way that you look at the places that host the U S open, your Shinnecocks, your Pinehurst, your Pebble beaches. There are a lot of particularly private clubs in the state and a couple of daily fee clubs as well that really view it as a, a, an honor and a responsibility to host the state am. And we we don't, we don't ask them either the state ams, and we're not going to ask courses to host every three years or every five years. We're usually looking at a, usually a minimum of a 10 year rotation, probably closer to 15 for the lot, a lot of the private clubs, which I think they appreciate that, you know, that's a lot easier ask to host once every 15 years or so. Um, so we're trying to schedule those out the major championships as far in advance as we can in terms of the lead up to the events. There is always months in advance, a site visit communication with the host professional, the GM, the superintendent as to what, we're going to need what our expectations are um, and to any, to answer any questions that the club has and to, to try to meet what their expectations are as well. Um, nine times out of 10, when you go to a club, they really want to make sure their best foot is foot best foot is put forward. They want the players to enjoy the experience of being out there. The membership is excited to host the event. They view it as an honor to host the championship and we want to make sure eyes are dotted and T's are crossed. And some clubs go as far as creating a championship committee. National Country Club did that a couple of years ago for the men's amateur when it was down there, which was, which was great. Um, so that will usually take place, and I'd say late winter, early spring, just to open the lines of the commu- lines of communication. And then we're typically trying to go on site probably as we get into for the men's state amateur, you know, you talk about May or June to see how the golf courses come out of the winter and start to engage with the superintendent about conditions. And what are some of the things we might be looking at? What are the, some of the challenges we might be facing? Um, Make sure food and beverages is on board with how many people are going to be around. What are, what are the needs going to be the players and the spectators um, and again, engaging everybody in the clubhouse as well to make sure they understand, you know, do, do we need to rent carts? Do we need to uh, shuttle people out to the tent tee? That was a big challenge at Abenaki this year and figuring out how to do that sort of administratively. And then you're probably looking at another on-site visit a couple of weeks before the event to go through everything again with the superintendent in particular to look at what is the condition of the golf course going to be when we get here in another couple of weeks? What are we going to be looking at? Are we in a drought? Have you been unable to grow any rough? 
Um, how fast are the greens right now? How fast do we want them for the championship? Um, what are you going to do with fairway height? What, do you, what is your mowing schedule going to look like for what we're going to be able to do in terms of, you know, setting tees? Is it a double tee start? Um, how do we work around that mowing, mowing schedule each morning of the championship? And then in terms of course setup, our strong preference is to be out there the day before. That is when we're actually selecting whole locations, marking the golf course. We mark all the penalty areas, mark the out of bounds, mark any of the ground under repair, which typically there's not a lot of when we're going to these championship golf courses. Uh, and we, as I said, we set the whole locations um, the day before the championship. That gives us the ability to pick spots that are going to be consistent with what the green speeds are the day before championship starts. It's going to allow us to pick spots where there haven't been holes set by the superintendent. Um, we're not dealing with things like a lot of ball marks in those areas. Um, so it gives us the flexibility to do things with course setup that, that are going to be best for the field. So for instance, this, this Sunday morning, I will be going out to Concord um, to set whole locations for the first two rounds of the, the ladies amateur and, and look at the course markings. Um, actually marked the golf course last week for their big, big three-day member guest and and they're going to touch some things up for us, but um, there's not much that will change from a course marking standpoint, typically when we're going out to a golf course, but we'll just double check that and make sure it's squared away. Um, and then again, work with the superintendent on, on any issues or struggles that they may have been having, particularly with some of the, the dry weather that we've been having lately. Yeah. Wow. That, I knew some of that was happening behind the scenes, but that's, that's certainly a lot of, a lot of preparation. And you just named, some of the bigger tournaments, I know you, there's many other tournaments throughout the whole season. So no wonder why summer is uh, incredibly busy. And I think this week you've got the, is it the junior championship? Yeah, the junior place? championship is over at, at the country club in New Hampshire. And again, same thing, uh, you know, there was communication with the the head pro and the superintendent in advance of the championship. And I was out there on Monday morning to mark the golf course was presented a really unique set of challenges with, with what the weather was like on Monday, uh, with the rain, but again, getting the golf course set up. And then, so we can come back here and administratively providing the, the players with a whole location sheet, uh, with a really detailed local rule sheet so that when the players get there, the entire, our philosophy on, on running tournaments, um, is, you know, it should be seamless from the golf courses perspective and from the players perspective, when the players show up to participate, they, they need to know that they can walk up to the first tee five or 10 minutes before their tee time and everything that they need to be able to go out and play is going to be given to them by the association and that everything they're going to potentially need on the golf course is going to be available to them, whether it's a spotter on a really difficult hole, whether it's a rules official when they have a question uh, or even providing a, a phone number on the rule sheet. So if they have an issue and they can't find anybody on the golf course right away, being able to pick up a phone and call somebody so that we can get somebody out there and answer a question for them. Um, and same thing from the, from the golf courses standpoint, you know, we, we want it to be, we want to be as low maintenance as we can possibly be from the golf courses perspective. We, we feel like we are guests at these golf courses. We feel very appreciative and honored no matter where we go, whether it's for a state am or for a one day event that the golf course, particularly now with how busy they are, Yep. They are giving us the opportunity to come out and, and run these events. And, and our golf courses are great. They understand what we do and understand we can't operate as an organization if we don't have access to facilities. Um, now, what what some facilities might want to host or be willing to host has has changed because of how busy they are. And we totally understand that and, and we're sympathetic to it. 
but we, we are guests there and, and we don't want to put undue burden on the staff. It's our tournament. We should be responsible for everything uh, from A to Z. And, and the goal is to make it a really easy experience on the pro shop staff and the head golf professional and the, the outside services and food and beverage. Um, and again, that just, that starts with communication when they know what's going on, when, when they know what's expected of them, um, there are no surprises when they show up and look, we'll ha- handle the messy stuff. We'll handle the rain delays. We'll handle the shuttling of people out to, to different holes and dealing with the difficult rulings and, and things that come up in a, inevitably during a tournament. Um, but that's our philosophy. We're, we're guests. We appreciate it. And we want it to be as easy on the facility and the membership as we can. Yeah. Um, so looking ahead for the next couple of years, are there particular goals or projects that the NHGA has that you want to mention and maybe related to that, uh, given your experience in Indiana? And I'm sure there's a, a good network of your peers around the state. But as you look around to see what other states are doing uh, and seeing a good idea and adapting it here, but anything coming down the pike in the next couple of years that the NHGA is particularly excited about? I think we're really focused on the the recent merger with the NHWGA. I mean, this is the first year that that our office has been tasked with running all of the historical NHWGA events. So that includes um, the Ladies Am coming up, and that includes their um, pretty hefty schedule of what they call Tuesday tournaments, which are more social casual events that are held throughout the course of the season. Um, we've integrated the board. The board has gotten a little bit bigger. So this this year is going to be a learning experience for us. I think there'll be a lot of discussions come the off season about what we can do differently, what we can do better, how we can engage more of, of that ladies demographic that maybe hasn't historically been as involved in some of the events. Are there different playing opportunities that we can be providing to the women out there? How do we engage more of our, you know, I think it's about 38 or 3,900 ladies in the state that have handicaps. What are we providing to them? Is it more, casual playing opportunities, isn't more competitive playing opportunities. Um, I think looking at, at, at the growth of junior golf and what we're doing there, we recently hired um, a new director of junior golf, Ben Lamon, and Ben's been great, but I know that he's really got some ideas to how to take the junior tour to a different level. It's been for a long time kind of um, developmentally focused and, and it's a great offering of events and, and we do a really nice job with it, but can we be, for instance, running a, a big time 36 hole regional junior event, that's going to attract players, not just from New Hampshire, but from Massachusetts and Maine and Vermont and all over new England and have kids coming down from Canada to play. That would be a big goal for us. And, and to have it be recognized by age AJGA and some of those bigger, uh, junior golf organizations, that'd be a, a nice goal for us. Um, and I think what we're doing to, I think, engage the the golf community, our, I think our Q rating has never been higher. And, and that's in large part because of COVID. All of a sudden, when golf courses were closed, all of these golfers who had never had any engagement with the NHGA or maybe knew about the NHGA once a week during the state AM because they might have read an article in the paper or seen something on MUR, all of a sudden they realized there was a state golf association that was advocating for the entire industry to get golf courses open. Um, you know, and I can attest to that because of the fact that my mailbox was full every single day for, um, about eight weeks straight when I would pop in here to the office. Yeah. I can, I can attest to that too. I remember those sad, painful weeks of golf course closures. Um, and I was certainly aware of you guys, but 
I was one of, I think, thousands of people that reached out to you guys as our state association to use your voice um, to get those golf courses back open. So thank you. You guys did a great job during that time frame to get us golfing again. Well, there was there was no roadmap for it. And I, I think short of the, the current mega millions jackpot, I'm not sure there's any amount of money I might go back in time to to do that. But look, the 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 flip side of that coin is like I said, it was great for us because it it gave the NHGA sort of an audience that we hadn't had before. And yeah. I think that the challenge, one of the challenges we have now is how do we take the 20,000 members that we have? Um, and how do we engage all of those folks that play golf in the state and identify as golfers, you know, cause that's in the neighborhood of 40 to 50,000 people, if not more that consider themselves to be golfers. How do we get them involved in the association? How do we provide value in being a member of the association outside of just having a handicap index and just being able to play in events? Cause there's plenty of golfers that don't have any interest in playing in our tournaments, even though we run events that are strictly social and you can make your own group and go out there and have a good time, just like you normally would, uh, with the group that you normally play with on the weekend, we, we, we offer those things, but again, there's still a stigma of the NHJ is for the best players in the state. It's for elite players. And I'm not sure I'm ready to go out there and play in a tournament where there might be, um, you know, rules officials out there, which in a lot of cases there aren't, we just want people to go out there and have a good time. But if there was a, a magic bullet for any golf association as to what we could do to engage the golfing communities in our state, because every state golf association struggles with this, the amount of members we have as compared to the amount of folks in our individual states that identify as golfers is not at a percentage where I think we want it to be. And that's where we as an association, we've got to come up with new and innovative ideas as to why, what is the value in being a member of the association? Um, yes, we can talk about things like advocating for the game and supporting the association. And that way we are again, a 501 C three nonprofit and everything that we do is to continue to advocate for the game. And we continue to do that now, even post COVID we work with the superintendents association, the, the first tee of New Hampshire, the PGA section to make sure that, I think anybody that knows anything about golf understands that things like pesticide usage, water usage, those are all hot button topics right now within state legislatures, no matter where you go. New Hampshire's been lucky. We've been insulated from a lot of those discussions. There's a big discussion in a lot of states about municipal golf courses and their usage as golf facilities. Why aren't they used for low-income housing? Could they be used better by cities? Um, again, we're lucky that, that a lot of those things that have come up have either quietly gone away, but we've got to be ready to, to help support the industry and helping non-golfers understand why those things are important. So the point being that a membership in the association helps us to do those things. But again, what, what can we be doing? What can we be offering golfers that they're going to say, you know what, it is worth the 30, 40, 50 bucks for me to go get a handicap because I want to support my state golf association. And also because I'm going to get X, Y, or Z out of my membership. So that's, that's a big challenge. I think for any smaller organization, smaller nonprofit is to, to provide that value. And again, if, if, if we knew what, what that, that one thing we could do, or those couple of things that we could do are to help get more people involved, we'd obviously be doing them, but it's something that we're working on every day in a conversation we're having every day as to, to how we can get more people involved with the organization. 
I've been wrapping up these interviews uh, by asking a simple question. Um, golf. I hope been... it's not about live golf. Nope, we're going to avoid that one. We've already touched on music. That might even be a, a bit of a third rail. No, a bit no of a touchy one. one, yeah. Um, golf's been a big part of your life um, for a long time now. Why do you love the game of golf so much? You know, what I tell people is, is one of the things I love about my job is getting to be around people and, and a lot of different people. And, um, I, I think the thing that I go back to about what golf is, is that it brings out the best in all of us. Um, you know, it can bring out the worst in all of us a lot of the time too. There's, there's that side of it as well. But I think for me that, that you just see what the game can do, um, and how much passion and love people have for it. Um, you know, I love the game. We talked a little bit before we hopped on the show. I love playing the game. I, I, I still, after all these years of being around it, um, still loving and the passion people have for it. Um, and the, the things that golf can do for people, I really do think that, you know, to see, to take it at its most basic level, to be out at the junior championship and to see, three kids taking their hats off and shaking hands. It, it, there's really something special about that. You're, you're creating values that people should take with them for a lifetime and they've learned them because of the game. So, you know, look, we've seen it all. We've seen the good and the bad and, and um, dealing with a lot of folks at a lot of different tournaments. And that's just the nature of dealing with as many people as we deal with. But to me, that's, that's the thing that's the best about it is that it really does bring out the best in people. Yeah. Great answer. Well, thanks, Matt. I really enjoyed this. I appreciate you taking time and coming on the show. And I enjoyed talking with you today. My pleasure. Happy to do it. Hope we can do it again. Thank you for listening. Granite State Golfers is produced by Dew Sweeper Productions. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, tee it up, have fun, and go low.